Blog Talk Radio. And good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And we're here today on the Pagan Tonight Radio Show, Ed the Pagan Show. That's because I'm I'm doing great. We're out in the field today. We're preparing for Welcome the next illustration. Welcome to Pagan's Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagan's Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. And uh, there we go. We have our opening. So th- I'm Ed the Pagan, and, and uh, we've been talking about merchants, festivals, and all of that sort of thing um, for about a couple weeks now, but I'm going to bring on uh, Phil Farber. Neil Goodman, as you know, we talked a little bit the last time out there, is doing well. He's getting rest, sent him energy, and um, yeah, that's what we want to do for Neil, and he's out there. So for those following our festival closings, it is now official that uh, Brushwood is basically closed, Cirrus Rising, and, and some of the other festivals at Brushwood have closed. And they'll all contact you out there. Some of them are going to do some online stuff that we'll help them with if they need our assistance. And tonight, the illustration starts. But today, I get to interview somebody I uh, absolutely enjoy always listening to. Uh, and that is Phil Farber, the author of High Magic, uh, Ritual Guide to Cannabis, right? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Um, well, I know I can give a long, long introduction of different things um, about it. But so, so one of the things that is out there, you are basically essentially a neurolinguistic programming a, a coach, a magician, a teacher, an author. You've, you've done so much. What, how would you describe yourself? <laughs> oh, I'm six feet tall. No, uh, uh, I don't know. I've been I've been exploring pretty much, you know, my own interests in magic and meditation and so on for uh, a really long time and uh, more than half my life, and I'm getting old. So uh, uh, it's been a while. I do uh, have a a practice in person when there's no pandemic, uh, uh, doing hypnosis and NLP and over the phone in the meantime. And... Uh, you know, I help people. My my specialty is really helping people get, uh, you know, magic and meditation practices uh, going and get motivation to do things like that. Um, although I do help people with other stuff too, habit change and uh, the usual things that hypnotherapists do. Okay. Uh, and now, but, but my main thing is that I I like to write books. That's what I really like to do. That's right. And you've written a number of them. I remember. Uh... Future Ritual was one of the first ones I've ever read. Um, okay. Going um, way out back there, but, there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but but the one that I think that's right now is is the one that I think that everybody's looking at is High Magic. I think you've done a great job of, over the years of being an advocate for the ritual and the proper use of cannabis for various things, as, as far as I can tell. You, you've done a lot of events at, like, Starwood is where I've seen them. Those are great events. If you haven't been to one of his workshops at, at Starwood, you've got to go. Um, next year when we do Starwood again, um, I'm hoping that it gets a lot of people wanting to go back to festivals. But um, so, what motivated you to write this book? Well, it's it's really been uh, kind of on the burner for a very long time. Uh, I wanted to write the book. Well, let's see. We'll, we'll take this back about 20 years or so to uh, Starwood when Stephen Gaskin, uh, the founder of the Farm Community and author of the book Cannabis Spirituality, uh, 
was speaking at Starwood, and he gave one. Uh, it was his his book, Cannabis Spirituality, had just come out, and he was doing workshops based on that. Uh, his bias was mainly towards Buddhism and Eastern philosophy, which is what he was quite expert in. And it was really a, a an inspiring and brilliant talk that he gave. Uh, however, I, I kept thinking that, well, we could do something similar with a bias more towards the Western esoteric tradition, which is more where I come from. And uh, so after after his talk, I went and I, I talked with Stephen for a while. And uh, the next year I uh, came out with a workshop called Magic for Potheads. And uh, those those went on not every year, but uh, for a lot of years over the last 20 or so years uh, at Starwood and at a few other events as well. And, uh, and very enjoyable, I must say. Okay, yeah, that's right. You've, you've been to at least a few of those. And uh, I do remember seeing you there, at least uh, this past summer. And uh, we, we evolved them over the years, and eventually it changed. Uh, uh, we, we took the humorous title of Magic for Potheads and changed it to Cannabis Magic or High Magic or uh, some various other uh, variations on a theme. And uh, the, the fun part of that is that there's so much information, there's so much to be learned about cannabis uh, and its use in magic that I never exhaust the material. I, I think I've, uh, uh, over 20 years of doing this, I've dipped into, I don't know, maybe half the material that's in the book and there's there's way more than than in the book too, uh, and especially right now we have so much of this coming back around. Uh, you know, it's been kind of hidden away uh, due to prohibition and so on for a lot of years now, and people have basically uh, in America, especially, have basically forgotten the history of cannabis and how important it was to generally the evolution of the human race. Uh, so, uh, it's yeah. very interesting. And my kids tease me about my the kids, not my my kids, my um, my kids and other kids. They're always teasing me about my reactions to smoking. How I I cover it up. I I, I cup things. I, I I do lots of things to hide the fact when somebody's walking up on me now when it's legal. <laughs> um, that I, I don't cover it up. I behave in a way that says, okay, is this person a cop or not a cop? And it's it's deeply ingrained in me because um, because those are the behaviors of the last 40 years, and uh, the city of Chicago has legalized it. It's been very funny because that's still my reactions, and I get teased about them. And I see in a lot of the older people, we saw that very definitive. This is prohibited. This is taboo. If we get in trouble, we'll get we'll get in trouble, and it really can be bad. And now it, it's it's really changed, and so. Has that really helped you kind of bring out this book, too, the fact that this climate is changing again? Yeah, finally. Uh, you know, some years ago, uh, when I went to Amsterdam for the first time, uh, friends, friends of mine had said, oh, you got to go to this coffee shop and, you know, whatever. And uh, uh, so I, I went in there and, you know, in Amsterdam, for those who don't know, coffee shops sell cannabis. <laughs> they rarely sell coffee. Uh, and uh, so... I went into one, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like looking both ways, and I, I, you know, I, I lean over the counter and I whisper to the girl behind the counter, so, uh, you know, uh, what do you got? 
<laughs> and she has this big smile and says in a loud voice, "Well, what kind of high would you like today?" You know, and and uh, you know, I, I sort of really had to overcome uh, a lot of that. You know, but uh, but again, now I'm back in the United States, and here in New York, uh, we've had decriminalization in New York since 1974. So pretty much my whole career as a pot smoker, <laughs> uh, it's been in a place where. It's relatively easier. Um, we were supposed to get legalization last year, but they were quibbling over aspects of the bill. Uh, and instead, they gave us a little bit more extended decrim here. So, uh, And we have medical herb here. Uh, but there's still that thing where it is technically a little bit illegal. And, uh, you know, you still have to look both ways. Um, the interesting so part of that is that People of our generation who grew up with prohibition, using cannabis, it became sort of the way we would do occult activities or if we were in a secret society. And you'd have to, like, you know, vouch for people to show up at, the, at your various meetings and, and check people out and make sure no one's a narc and so on and have, have the password, right, which whatever that was, a uh, bag of weed. And... uh uh, so oh, sure. we're, we're still kind of overcoming that. And, uh, you know, uh, even though I've been researching this and, you know, really understanding that this prohibition thing is really, it's a blip in, in history. I mean, we've had legal and respected and admired cannabis, uh, you know, among humans since Paleolithic times. Uh, you know, so the, the since the hundred years or so that it's been illegal, eh, it's a it's a blip, but for those of us who grew up with it that way, it's gonna it's gonna take us a few more years to to get beyond that. Well, when does it start? I mean, I, I hear this all the time. So this is like one of those moments when everybody gets high. So I wonder who the first people who who smoked it or who used it were. Do we know? So, yeah, well, we kind of know. Uh, the The theory is that uh, our Paleolithic uh, ancestors. Uh, we're, they were foraging for food, and of course, uh, cannabis seeds are highly nutritious and very edible and kind of tasty. And uh, so our our ancestors would uh, they would find the plants and they would pick the seeds out of it. And the seeds, of course, come out of the, the female flower tops, which are very rich in the resins, which carry THC and CBD and all the fun things that we like. So in picking out the seeds from it, they would get the sticky stuff on their fingers and the sticky stuff of course smelled wonderful and uh you know if they ended up eating it or mixing it into the into what they were cooking uh some interesting things would happen and some of this dovetails nicely with uh terence mckenna's stoned ape theory which suggests that our paleolithic ancestors uh, were ingesting various psychoactive substances in their diet just as part of general foraging and so on. Mushrooms look tasty, mm, you know, and, uh, uh, and the cannabis plant, of course, uh, you know, a rich source of nutrition. And so in the process, they were picking up some of this, and uh, eventually people would learn to separate out the, you know, that, oh, it was this plant that made me feel that interesting way. And uh, our, our history with cannabis goes, I mean, it goes back to the earliest history of humans. Uh, Carl Sagan suggested that it was the, the very first cultivated plant. Uh, 
which makes a lot of sense because it's the source of so many things that we would use in civilization. I mean, fiber for rope and cloth and uh, there's medicines and fuel and all kinds of things that we get out of the plant. So, uh, you know, our ancestors were using... Well, so it's kind of a mother plant. It's like a mother plant or a mother food plant. Yeah, definitely, uh, uh, possibly even the mother of civilization. Uh, uh, One of the theories, uh, the the current research on this, there's, there's this great book, it's a college textbook called Cannabis, Evolution, and Ethnobotany by uh, Robert Connell Clark and Mark Merlin, uh, who are two very well-known ethnobotanists. And they proposed the idea that not only was cannabis the source of fiber for weaving, but it was also the source of the cognitive leap, which enabled humans to conceive of the idea of weaving. Right, that by getting high, they were able to think in different ways and go, ooh, you know, maybe these fibers twined this way would make something. Uh, so it's interesting. And, and, uh, so that is interesting. Um, that, so, that, okay, so I see that against a, a competitive one for mushrooms and things like that. I know we're talking about high magic, uh, which you can get uh, from your favorite bookstore right now through their internet or through any way that you get your books or directly from what's your website? Uh, I don't have it up on my website yet. I'm still, I have some computer problems that I'm redoing my website. My website is metamagic.com, M-E-T-A hyphen Mm -hmm. magic with a K.com. And it will be updated soon, but people can go directly to the Llewellyn worldwide website, Llewellyn.com. Uh, order it from there, or you can get it from the likely suspects of Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any other online booksellers. Go to Llewellyn Worldwide. Support our community. Get as close to the source as you can. Remember, I tell That's you that it. constantly. Yeah. And it means a lot in books. And it may not be in some other things, but in books it absolutely has a direct impact on the author, the publisher, and their ability to continue bringing you quality material, like uh, this book, High Magic, by Phil Farber. Okay. So I've seen a lot of competition about the idea, or maybe not competition, where they want to say mushrooms were that cognitive reasoning, too. Are they exclusive? Are they together? Well, I would think it was probably in in various areas where humans were. There were different psychoactive plants. Um, We also have that that same kind of discussion that goes on about uh, the Soma Sacrament, which was uh, among some of the earliest, cultures that we know of that started having religions and spiritual traditions, uh, the Indo-Europeans and the Scythians and so on, uh, the, the sacrament was Soma. And uh, back in the 60s, uh, there was a, an ethnobotanist or ethnomycologist, uh, R. Gordon Wasson, who proposed that Soma was a mushroom, was uh, Amanita muscaria. Um, however, the, the archaeological evidence uh, which was later, <laughs> which happened later, uh, probably after Wasson was gone, uh, showed when they, when they found uh, in parts of Central Asia, they actually found temples and factories where the Soma and the related drug Homa uh, were created. And it, was, it turned out to be cannabis uh, with some other admixtures. And there were apparently different mixtures of soma that may have been used for different kinds of rituals and different purposes, but the basis for most of them was cannabis. Uh, some of them did have mushrooms, some of them had opium, some of them had ephedra, which is a stimulant. 
And uh, uh, but again, cannabis was pretty much the central one, uh, sacrament. Uh, so and, I had and that goes way back. That's that's the origins of most of our religions comes out of that soma sacrament. And so, and that's you know, and again, customized to the local areas what they would have, but it was mostly. And is that was that sativa indica? Okay, so I'm confused as everybody. Let me go ahead and, <laughs> and, and I'm accused. Of, so again, we go back, and so this is kind of an extra show. Um, we go back, and you're like, for me, if I was lucky, if I got a choice between two types, I was a lucky guy that day. Um, right. You know, you didn't have so, you know you, you had. You didn't have these back brand then, names and they, all these numbers. Back then, they they had they had choices too. They had different strains, uh, way For back sure. in the dawn of history. Um, unfortunately, when when we were growing up, and you know, in the late '60s, the '70s, and, and, and the '80s, basically, you were lucky to get a, ba- a bag of weed, and it was either weed or it wasn't, <laughs> right? Um, right. But, you know, nowadays you go into a dispensary and there's eight zillion kinds. Uh, the the whole sativa indica thing is think of that more as varietals, right? It's not really a genetic thing. Uh, what they found they they have actually sequenced the cannabis genome, and what they have found is that virtually all of the psychoactive strains are technically cannabis indica. Uh, however, we divide those up into uh, narrow-leaf drug strains and broad-leaf drug strains, which are essentially what we usually consider as the sativa strains and the indica strains. The true cannabis sativa is actually fiber hemp, and you probably wouldn't want to smoke it, although people are getting into that now because of the CBD content. Um, but uh, in general, what we call, when you go into dispensaries, you say, may I have a sativa, please? What you're actually getting is narrow-leaf drug strain cannabis indica. All right, I know it's complicated, and generally most people are going to stick with the varietal names. So if you think of it as like with wines, you have a, you know, a Cabernet or a, you know, whatever, uh, you know, or Burgundy or whatever, and they're varietal names, but it's all from a grape. <laughs> It's all from the same species of grape. So, isn't the, so? What I'm getting to understand is that it's the different types. There's THC, as we know. As I'm always used to THC. There's just THC. That was what you were driving for. The more THC, the better. That's been the rule of my life. I've run into things that have a little bit too much THC for me. But then there's <laughs> I have. But as you were pointing out, that certain amounts of CBD oils actually make it. Yeah, we've always been burning a certain amount, you know, when we've smoked or, or if we've eaten it. We've always had a certain amount of CBDs into it, and that, that helps modulate it, the CBD THC. And I never understood that, but I was, and sorry, you were kind of explaining to me that. I've been trying to explain right. it to people, but it, I do it badly. Well, um, uh, the, mm-hmm. the current theory about cannabis and the way it affects us is dependent on an idea called the entourage theory. And what that suggests is that the various cannabinoid chemicals, and there's over 100 of them that they've identified at this point, and they keep discovering new ones in different strains. And it's, no, it's not just THC and CBD. There's all kinds of other ones, CBG and THCV and CBDV. And, uh, I mean, literally over, over 100 of them. And uh, they each have different 
you know, effects uh, ranging from hallucinatory to very relaxing to whatever. And in addition to all of those cannabinoids, you also have terpenes, which are the aromatic chemicals, and they're the same as we find in most other common herbs that we use, uh, and, and a lot of other plants. They're what give terpenes give oranges their smell, and they give pine trees their smell, and so on. Um, and also, along with that, along with the cannabinoids and the terpenes, there's also flavonoids, which are these various antioxidant chemicals that you find. And all of these, in various combinations, interact together and act at the receptor sites in tandem, in connection with each other. So the effect of a particular strain of weed isn't really that dependent on, say, how much THC is in there, but the whole constellation of various active chemicals and the way that they combine and work together. So that's why we have so many different strains, and they're all a little bit different, and they all smell a little bit different, and they all have slightly different effects, because there's so many combinations of these, uh, of these chemicals. And there's some strains that are good for treating one kind of illness and some that are really good for meditating and some, and everybody has to sort of find their own, uh, you know, what works for them. But again, the, the, the choices are very wide and uh, with more targeted breeding, which is what we're really seeing now, there's going to be very specific strains for very specific kinds of things uh, coming out in the near future. Well, they did that kind of interesting. They did it um, for college. I forget the name. It was with um, from the Friday series about um, going to Harvard University. They they were literally breeding different types of marijuana for various types of ailments or t- different types of highs. And I always thought that was a funny concept. But now it's literally becoming true that, that people are yeah. really experimenting. You're, th- you're thinking of how how high with uh, uh, Method Man yeah. and Red Man. Oh yeah. But that right. started out with a genius guy. He was literally saying, well, what's wrong? What do you want? And he had, right. like, all these different plants, and he would give you, a, oh, I've got some stomach problems. It was very much one of the first places I've seen it in a more sort of pop culture way. It was very pop culture, but it was very much he was de- dispensing medicine along with his highs. Hmm? Yeah, that's right. In that. and, and, and we do see that. And if you go into a medical dispensary and you say, hey, I mm-hmm. have Crohn's disease or I have arthritis or whatever, they'll, they will mm-hmm. point you to specific strains that other people have said, you know, this works really well for. Um, and, and, of course, the joke of the and the joke of the movie was, and I don't wonder how much of a joke is that he grew, he, you know, he, he got, you know, passed away, and then he suddenly was in his plant that they put his ashes into, the kind of <laughs> idea of reaching sort of an astral space. And then it gets me back to your book, High Magic, is in a lot of ways, well, that was supposed to be funny and comical, but that was really, for some people, that is one way I've known them that said that they see things. They've been able to see things when they're smoking or they're able to relax when they're, you know, ingesting or any sort of presence with it. They're able to relax and allow themselves those spiritual experiences. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, why sure. is it well, that, you know, we need that? Hmm? Well, that specific thing that they do where there is <clears> – <throat> His friend Ivory dies, and he puts some of his ashes in the uh, – uh, he grinds up the ashes, and he puts them in the, in the weed uh, and, or, or in the plant, and he grows the plant out with the ashes. Um, that actually – I don't know if, if Method Man and Red Man were 
were hip to the the history of this, but there's a, a really ancient connection between cannabis and ancestor worship. And uh, some of the earliest rituals that we know of among the, the Scythians and so on were actually funeral rites. And uh, Herodotus writes about, uh, and I like, 500 B.C. or something like that, uh, about witnessing a Scythian funeral rite in which the participants go into a little tent and they fire up this humongous vaporizer in the tent and, and inhale the vapors and, uh, and, and come out crying out in joy. You know, Woohoo! But, uh, uh, and, and the tradition of cannabis and ancestor worship and connecting with the ancestors uh, was pretty widespread at one time. And there's actually even people in Africa who uh, actually still do some of these rituals where the idea is that using cannabis connects you to all of your ancestors who used cannabis, so that you could actually smoke a little bit and go to your ancestor altar or wherever and actually connect with them uh, through the use of the, the cannabis and the smoke and so on. Um, in general, though, the idea that cannabis is, is uh, you know, very closely connected with uh, spirituality and meditation and so on. I, again, this goes way back. Um, Albert Hoffman, the, the famous pharmacologist who first discovered LSD and first did chemical analysis of psilocybin and so on, um, he proposed the idea that many of our spiritual traditions were actually created to recreate the cannabis experience. So that actually the origins of meditation and ritual were in effect to recreate that experience that people were having. So the combined usage, of course, kind of connects us back to some of those very ancient trends. And, so, uh, and we still see it. There's the unbroken traditions of Shiva sadhus using cannabis and uh so on. They inherited it from the uh, from the Scythians, and uh, and so on. And uh, you know, there's a connection, a strong connection between yoga and cannabis that goes back millennia. Um, uh, so one thing. Have long, yeah. Go ahead, magicians. Yeah, but magicians have long used cannabis. Uh, a lot of connections to it. A lot of it went underground during uh, the Inquisition uh, because it was connected with pagan traditions and shamanism and so on. And, you know, it would quickly get you a, an interview with the Inquisition. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it continued and, and under code names and so on, like it, like it has more recently under our prohibition years. Uh, so there, there's been a connection with spirituality and so on, uh, going back to the beginning. And uh, there's actually some interesting things. We can look into the neuroscience of, uh, the, or the neuropharmacology of cannabis, and we can see some interesting things happening in the brain that actually make meditation or practicing ritual a little bit more conducive. And, and, and I think it's fascinating how you lay a lot of these ideas out in the book and how you give them a very, you know, this is a very brief taste for people who may not even knew this existed. Because um, I get a lot of times, oh, it may have been important at one time, but now it's just a product. It's just commercialized. It's, 
you know, everybody just get, smokes to get high. There's no value to it. So I think in a lot of ways, your book is offering back the value that we once gave it just because it's been, has a commercial aspect to it. Doesn't mean it doesn't have a value of it. Just like wine is now got to be very commercial. No question. But there is sure. still lots of sacredness to wine. And so, right. and, and, people, and this, who are, people who are wine connoisseurs, they, you know, they know the difference between their, their special bottle of wine that they, that may be a kind of unofficial sacrament in their life. And, you know, cheap box wine or something like that. And, uh, uh, and the same with cannabis users. There's there's strains that are ancient and conducive to uh, doing ritual, and then there's strains that are you know just good for like going to sleep or or mellowing out or watching cartoons or whatever. It, it's all good, um, you know. Uh, the the problem is is that these many years of prohibition sort of trained a lot of us to think of cannabis as an intoxicant first of all, uh, which it's not really. Um, you know, not like alcohol or opioids or something like that. And also to think of it as, uh, you know, as something, as a vice, right? As, uh, uh, and even I, I, I'm guilty of this. I, you know, I, I still have part of my brain goes like, you know, oh, you know, it's, you know, whatever. I, when I, uh, some years back, uh, going back about uh, 15 yeah, yeah, I guess for 15 to 20 years, uh, I had I got Lyme disease, and I was like, my first thing that I would do when I was back then, if I got sick, was I would eliminate anything in my habits that I thought might prevent my healing or slow it down or whatever. Stop drinking alcohol and put aside the coffee, and uh, and and at that time I was also like, you know, you know, I'll stop using cannabis and so on, and just have healthy habits, whatever. And it didn't help. <laughs> doing that and when i finally you know somebody suggested to me well you know you, the cannabis might actually help with some of the aches and pains and so i started getting the cannabis back in there and that's when i started feeling better right away so you know part of you know even having researched this and having been around it my whole life and so on um you know i'm still guilty of that it's a, it's kind of ingrained after all this you know we have movies where stoners are confused idiots or uh you know whatever they're they're gentle morons or <laughs> whatever you want to say um or they're you know or it's an evil drug i sometimes tune into old tv shows out of the out of the 60s and stuff like that and it's like you know you're going to ruin your life with that stuff um so well know, that's or, what i was taught i mean i mean i was taught i guess I'm I'm probably I'm probably as classic as you get. I was introduced at 14 years old, 15 years old. You know, smoking behind the schoolroom. First time I ever smoked, I went and fell asleep. Um, <laughs> about the third time I tried it, we were over at a friend's house and we we're doing bongs. Um, and it became this sort of super taboo uh, culture. And I was still a church boy, and it's like, okay, this is bad. And it took on a really occulty aspect to it for me, because I mean it was then I was suddenly with a friend, friends, and some of the stoners were like public and out place, and they would get hassled by the cops. They'd get stopped, and it was always like a cat and mouse game with them. But for the rest of us, it became like we're all now, and and the time I thought of it, we are now all criminals. We're all rebels. 
depending which way you <laughs> phrase it, and I always phrase it as rebels. Hmm? Um, well, I, I never I saw think, myself as. I, I think there was no, kind of a, something, an aspect to it back then, where you had to be a little bit of a rebel, and you had to be thinking outside the box, and being able to uh, put aside some of these usual societal things, and uh, so. I think some of us who, you know, at that age, I also started smoking when I was around 15. And uh, uh, you had to be able to question authority, right, to, uh, you know, to be able to look at our culture and say, well, hey, we've been lied to. And uh, that sort of, uh, it kind of, for a lot of us, it sort of opened up some of the cracks in, in our thinking about, society and government and so on. It's like, well, if the government's lying to us about this, what else are they lying to us about? And, uh, you know, so it it actually was a big part of the, uh, you know, the peace movement of the 60s and and so on, so much to the point where when Richard Nixon wanted to persecute the people who were protesting him, uh, he invented the Controlled Substances Act, and this is actually in his in the it's in the White House transcripts and uh, John Dean and so on have later have confirmed oh. this. That oh yeah. The reason that that he created the Controlled Substances Act was to be able to round up and arrest the hippies who were protesting him. Mm-hmm. Oh no, absolutely. That was a big. I think a really important part of this is that it was used as and. I've seen where some of the original laws were against were anti-Mexican, not anti-marijuana, but anti. Um, they wanted a reason to hassle Mexican workers along in Texas. I guess it was one of the very first laws that were passed. There's sure, yeah, that had a presence. Workers were. and uh, and black jazz musicians were, were high on the agenda of people that they wanted to persecute. And uh, Harry so, Anslinger, who was the the government official who was basically responsible for creating cannabis prohibition in in the 1930s uh he was a big old racist who uh who really had it in for particularly jazz musicians and he's essentially the one who hounded uh billy holiday and to uh, uh to her death and so on i mean uh, really tragic stuff but uh that's what that's what they were after was they were you know they were trying to much like we see in politics today, they were trying to play to a racist base and uh, and gain support among people who disliked who, or who were xenophobic and afraid of people who weren't like them and so on. And that's really where all this comes from. Uh, because prior to that, cannabis had been legal everywhere uh, and was widely used. It was one of the most popular over-the-counter uh, medicines that people could get. And when they tried making it illegal, the American Medical Association, uh, first of all, they, they were not hip to the, to the word marijuana, which is what they were trying to make illegal. And when they finally realized that marijuana was the same thing as cannabis, which was their favorite medicine, uh, it was a little too late. And they protested it, the American Medical Association. Uh, they actually sent a doctor to the hearing to protest the uh, uh, but it was already a little too late, and the, and the whole thing came down, and, and uh, uh, all the all these politicians wanted to jump in and say, "Oh, the scourge of our youth," and uh, "What about the children?" and blah blah blah. Um, so, uh, and all of a sudden, the, the medicine that people used, uh, which always said cannabis indica on it, 
uh, was suddenly gone from the shelves, and people are like, where did it go? Oh, it's the same thing as that marijuana stuff? I didn't know that. And they just then they had to accept it at that point, right? They didn't have a choice at that point. They didn't That's fight right. back. No one thought it was no one thought it was important enough to fight back. But then right. well, we had lots because of because it wasn't it, the use of it wasn't that widespread. Uh, it, it was basically in these subcultures, although there were plenty of other folks who who enjoyed their cannabis. Uh, and uh, but yeah, it wasn't. It, you know, nowadays there's you know millions and millions of people who who like their cannabis and uh, who will support legalization. But that's only very recently uh, that that we've actually overcome some of this uh, you know cultural bullshit to you know sum it up. Well, I think ultimately the prohibition probably took it out of being. I hate to say it, being out of where it was fairly medicine oriented or spiritual oriented. Maybe a couple handfuls of people who really enjoyed it for the sake, just its own sake, because people don't understand alcohol has always been the American preference of, as far as I can tell, for of, of intoxicant, hmm? um, coffee, tobacco. I mean, America is a nation that ran down intoxicants. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. of different types. Hmm? Yeah, and and even uh, even hemp. I mean, we, it goes back to uh, United States uh, up until the 30s. The United States was one of the biggest hemp producing nations. Our Navy ran on it because all the rope that went into ships and so on, which was really a big deal, uh, was produced there. So much so that uh, that only a few years later, when we went into World War II, they actually had to re-legalize hemp uh, very briefly so that they could get enough rope for the ships in the war. Uh, there's actually a little, a couple little government films, Hemp for Victory. Um, but again, they started calling it hemp and separating it from this idea of this, you know, the devil's weed, marijuana, and so on. Um, and and that actually sort of, I don't know, it, it cracked, it broke the ice a little bit more recently that uh, we could actually grow hemp again. The, the recent farm bill that allowed uh, people to grow hemp again and produce things from hemp, including CBD and so on. Uh, so we're seeing some of that coming back in that that same way. Um, but again, you know, America, it was, we were one of the biggest producers of hemp. Um, in some of the areas, Kentucky, Tennessee, that area was, was probably the major hemp-producing region in the world at that time. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's starting to come back that way. And so it's very interesting that the United States has always been willing to uh, – for moral purposes, what they see as bizarro moral purposes, usually racist, how much they will suppress an entire industries, you know, to, you know, to, to, to get to those ends. Because what you're saying is, and I know it to be true, is that those industries were extremely important and extremely valuable. And for some, it, it was the thing that hurt everybody in a bad, you know, hurt a lot of farmers when they pulled that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of this, uh, along with the racism, uh, Jack Herrera, who was one of the, the great historians of cannabis, uh, he proposed the idea that some of this was also corporate greed, that you had uh, the paper industry, which was figureheaded by William Randolph Hearst, who owned all the newspapers and, and the paper industry that produced them. Um, when hemp became a viable source of paper, which it always was, but 
new processes were coming online that would would have made the paper a lot cheaper to produce and and it's a much more renewable and sustainable crop than trees so that idea that that Hearst who publicized all of Harry Anslinger's bullshit in his newspapers uh, and all this racist stuff um, had a uh, had a greed motive that he wanted to lock down the paper industry for his own industry uh, also the the DuPont corporation was coming online with synthetic fibers around that time and hemp of course is one of the great inexpensive and strong and useful fiber plants in the world so uh, again there, there was some indication that perhaps these various corporations were you know they got behind this legislation and paid off politicians and did all the things that corporations still do today to sway uh, you know laws and outcomes and so on and that 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 continue on today so today we see a lot more of it but now that people are in quarantine and in some places it's being extended to the end of may and and depending where they are various legals are decriminalized to actually legal and you should then go ahead and first order the book high magic uh from uh llewellyn worldwide first get that into the house um but how do people you know maybe because some people have time to do things that can let them reconnect i mean i've talked to a lot of people who said okay Maybe it's time for me to do some of those longer rituals I've always talked about. Or, <laughs> right. and in this case, what could they do? You know, besides getting your book, everybody. Yes, I'm pushing books. Um, I am not paid to do so. I just, I, I love Phil. I love the way he writes. I love a lot of the concepts. They've changed some of the way I look at magic. Um, I really like this. I won't talk too much about it because I don't want to give away spoilers. Um, it's well worth it. Well, I mean, it's well worth it. It's a lot of good information. But how, what can they do now, other than getting your book, to um, kind of uh, kind of help them resacralize, I guess? Well, uh, the one thing that I kind of reemphasize over and over again in the book is that if you're going to use cannabis or any other entheogen uh, in in, a, in ritual work or in meditation, you should be familiar with the ritual work separately and with whatever your entheogen is separately and, and know what the effects are and, you know, what you're dealing with before you combine them. So mm-hmm. knowing, knowing your ritual inside and out before you start doing it. I mean, cannabis is famous for disrupting short-term memory a little bit. And so you want to have that ritual down so you don't have to go like, Oh, what was I supposed to say now? <laughs> right. uh, so, uh, but once, once you've got that and, you know, be scientific about it. Experiment a little bit, right? Do your do your ritual the, the usual way, and then add in a few puffs of cannabis and see how mm-hmm. it's different happens for you. And for most people, they're going to notice that things take a slightly different direction, or maybe a very dramatically different direction. And uh, uh, it's it's usually very interesting. the The really interesting part. Uh, in terms of ritual and meditation, um, our brains have two major modes that they work in. One is called executive function, which is really focused awareness, problem solving, uh, so on. And it's when your brain is doing something, right? It's when you're you're trying to figure something out or you're trying to, uh, you know, you're working on a problem or you're creating something and so on. The other is what's called the default mode network, 
which is imagination and daydreaming and your your brain doing unconscious tasks to take the things that you've experienced during the day and to work them into a kind of narrative uh, about who you are and what you do and what your life uh, has meaning with and so on. Uh, so <clears throat> normally they're mutually exclusive. So when you're doing executive function tasks, you're, you're solving problems and so on, your imagination is kind of damped down. When you're, when you're being imaginative and so on, your executive function stuff is damped down, right? which is why all of us you know, in school, we were told, stop daydreaming and do your math problems. Right? So uh, the thing with cannabis Absolutely. is that it actually allows for, for those two networks to at least in part function at the same time so that your imagination and connection to, to creativity and the astral realm and, the, and the, the things that we create with our mind, uh, our, our unconscious, all the, the symbols of our unconscious mind and so on, uh, and solve problems at the same time and be focused and do things. So it actually gives you uh, some leeway to be engaged in your ritual and to still experience a lot of this, uh, you know, imaginative kinds of things that are the result and the process of magic. That's something I think that's important. Okay, so I have one last question I think people ask. Okay, and, and you, you are uniquely qualified for this. Okay. Um, so you are. The, basically, so people tell me, says, oh, I don't do marijuana. I don't do cannabis. And they use more derogatory terms than that. Because it makes me open to suggestion. It makes me, you know, people can, you know, can people can fuck with your head that way. So you often statement. Mm -hmm. And I want to keep myself controlled and, con, you know, in control. I hear that is probably the number one thing I ever hear about from people who say you should never try it because you, you lose control. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've rarely seen anyone lose control on cannabis. I, I think that's a, you know... Not the way that people do on alcohol or whatever. I, and I think some of this attitude stems from the fact that the, the intoxicant that people are most familiar with in our society is alcohol. And beyond a certain point with alcohol, you have more than a few drinks, well, you're out of control. And you may even black out and do things <laughs> that you have no idea you're doing and somebody tells you the next morning that you had the lampshade on your head and were dancing naked. Uh, but... With cannabis, that rarely ever happens, and most people are very aware of how high they are, which is why there's a little, you know, the whole people get upset about the idea of like, oh, people might get high and drive. Well, that, that's always a possibility, but for the most part, when somebody's too high to drive, they know it. They go, I'm too high. I don't want to drive. Um, <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. So it's the same thing with doing ritual work. If, you, if you're a little too high or whatever, you're going to go, meh. Um, in terms of being mm -hmm. suggestive, when you're doing magic, you do want to be somewhat suggestive. You want to be able to have the, the outcomes, the things that you're suggesting to yourself in your ritual take lodge in your brain and work. So in, in that sense, cannabis can be very useful. Um, also, cannabis is it's probably the closest thing that we've ever identified to the hypnotic state, uh, which, which is also an interplay between 
uh, executive function and the, the default mode network. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely some suggestibility there, and there's uh, let's think of it more as open-mindedness, that, that maybe the cannabis opens you a little bit more to possibility. Um, we do have, and that, but but we never really lose that sense of being able to focus in on it and test things and uh, all, all the basic safeguards that we usually have in magic. You know, you, you want to you, you contact an entity, you, you want proof from the entity that it's not just your imagination, that it's actually engaged in something in the real world, and so on. So, yep, so I, I actually learned that last really summer. What's that? Uh, I said I learned that last summer. Um, yeah. That whole idea of wanting to identify the spirit and make sure that they're provable or like they're really there, even if no one else can see it. Um, I got a big dosage of that last year. It's a, it's, um, you can do it any time. So is that that brings us back to the beginning here. So this makes why c- cannabis and sativas and all of these things we talk about, especially cannabis, was probably soma because it did make you suggestible and open-minded and opened up your spirit and heart, right? That's yeah, probably why I, I it was think- using that. Yeah, I, although I don't think when people say suggestible, they, they're more saying this in the modern context of, like, we're always being bombarded with suggestions in our culture, advertising and things in movies and, uh, you know, the, the way a family is supposed to be that you see portrayed in television. And, you know, all these things are they're suggestions, you know, buy our product and so on. And, you know, I say buy my book. Right? They're, they're all suggestions. And mm-hmm. we're bombarded. Our culture is just full of that. It's part of capitalism in general. And uh, you do need to be careful about that, right? I mean, you don't want to accept, you know, weird conspiracy. And, you know, especially like right now we're seeing the proliferation of bizarre conspiracy theories. <laughs> uh, oh, absolutely. However, the cannabis actually, it gives you the rather than – necessarily being suggestive, it allows you to be open-minded and to test out different hypotheses. For a lot of us, it actually helps us to question the suggestions that we've been given. And, you know, I gave the example of, you know, the reefer madness attitude that, you know, you're, you're going to take one puff and suddenly become a, a crazy lunatic who blah, 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 you know, whatever. Um, you know, so on one hand, I, I think you do have to there, – there's a phenomena in uh, cannabis use called dishabituation, which is that at some point most people who use cannabis regularly start to see through the cultural habits and conditioning that they've been exposed to. And so rather than necessarily being suggestible, it's more about being able to identify those suggestions and to see what's, what's really happening. So – um, you know, I suppose somebody could be nefarious about it. And uh, in fact, the um, the government in the precursor to the MK Ultra program, uh, the the nearest thing that they ever found to a truth serum was a, a cannabis preparation used in combination with hypnosis. And even then, both cannabis and hypnosis, the individual can still pop out of it and go like, you know, hey, screw that. I'm you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and, and in fact, maybe more apt to do that. Um, I don't know if you ever seen the the beginning. It's kind of a uh, not my favorite movie, but uh, the very beginning of the movie Pineapple Express, where they. Uh, I um, do. I have. 
right? They're, they're, uh-huh. they're making this little government film about a cannabis user testing it out, mm-hmm. and the guy's like, you know, he smokes a little bit. He starts laughing at the at the researchers. You know, in right? Case they terminate the program immediately. <laughs> Absolutely. So, in part, I think maybe we are the prohibition that we said, like you said, is a blip in history, was really about. It was really about the idea of it. I think about keeping us in that thing because I feel like we've gone through a program of industrialized propaganda. Advertising became this sort of industrialized version, this commercialized version of propaganda. And we can all get into that another time. But this idea of constantly trying to control our society, kind of control our behaviors, trying to make us into one America, especially in the Cold War. People don't realize I'm a Cold War remnant. I mean, I, I was raised right into my adulthood to believe in a Cold War. In a world uh, by a world where there's enemies and there are friends, and then there's the government, who is the third force in our lives. They're neither friend nor enemy. They are simply a thing of power. Um, that's how I was raised. You know, the government was a thing of power. You had your friends, you had your enemies, and they were all pretty identifiable. And uh, I don't feel like that the world's anywhere near that that reality anymore. And I think as marijuana has become more legal, actually, that's part of it. Hmm? Yeah, I, I, I do think you're right, and I think that that the more people who start becoming, we're, we're going to see a shift in the way people are generally thinking about things and doing things as cannabis becomes more uh, the, the the popular choice, more so than alcohol, and, and we're going to see that eventually. Um, nobody's ever going to stop using alcohol because hey, it's you know it's okay to have a beer, you know whatever. Um, for, for most of us. So personally, I have medical reasons why I cannot drink alcohol. Um, I do miss it. I mm-hmm. used to love it. But, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, but the more people who are using cannabis, there's a different way of thinking and a more open-minded way and a more ability to question some of these uh, cultural conditioning and things that society imposes on us. So I, I think we're going to see more of that as, as cannabis becomes more legalized and so on. So hopefully this is a shift in the right direction. People becoming a little I, bit more compassionate, a little bit more connected with each other, a little bit more apt to meditate, things like that. So um, we're coming to the last few minutes. I kept about a few minutes. Um, so how can people get a hold of you um, if they want to find out more about not just this, but you do a lot of amazing things. I want to have Phil on again, but I, but I wanted to make sure everybody knew about it. I'm really – I'm really pumped about this book. Um, it actually means a lot for me. It's cultural. I mean, it's been it's, yay, my culture's winning. Um, and it's such a what's <laughs> true, yeah. You know? It is, you know. These are the type of books we always talked about. People, we'd love people to have written, and you've written one that I really love. Um, so how can they get a hold of you? And you do so much more than just this. Like you said, you're a magician and and teacher and practitioner. How can they get a hold of you? Well, hopefully I'll have metamagic.com uh, back up and running in the next week or so. Um, I, had, I had a little computer problem that I, I had to reinstall on my software. Now I have a learning curve of <laughs> all this new software uh, that I need oh, to, I hear, use yeah. to, to do it. So, uh, But uh, uh, that, that should be happening pretty soon. But in the meantime, you can still – the old stuff that's on the site there, uh, there's still contact information. You can find me on Facebook uh, as Phil Farber or – uh, there's a page for the book for High Magic. Uh, you can contact me any of those ways. Uh, I'm I'm pretty accessible. Uh, you can also write to me uh, through the publisher through Llewellyn. Uh, address is in the front of the book. 
or on their website. And uh, and you have lots of other material out there. I mean, this is just your latest, but you have a, a number sure, of books out uh, there. Brain Magic, Meta Magic. I have uh, Future Ritual. I have some novels out as well. I, uh, the the cannabis uh, enthusiasts who might be listening might like uh, Legendary Blue Smoke, which is the most recent novel I've written. Uh, which is a it's a fantasy novel and it's it's funny it's a humorous fantasy novel uh, with a strong cannabis oriented theme shall we say that sounds uh, like a so, lot of fun uh, yeah hopefully when uh, when we're all out of pandemic mode here we'll be uh, back going to festivals and things like that and I I hope to be out and making the rounds of festivals and doing the the the, the book tour that I'm not doing now. <laughs> Uh, and but, once we come out of there, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And let's hope, yeah. let's hope, you know. But but right now, folks, stay home. You know, do whatever they're asking us because right now it's the best shot we've got of getting this get through this. Um, right. We'll be oh, back. I'm, I'm also we'll gonna, be back. I just want to say one thing here about oh the, sure, about, please about the pandemic is that uh, cannabis users stop sharing your joints. Stop it. Okay. Go one for each person. <laughs> Wow, you know, uh, well, see, I'm in a dry zone. I'm, I'm in a quarantine zone, believe it or not. Oh yeah, I ended up in a quarantine zone because I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, no medical card, no real contacts. So I'm going through this one. So I'm looking forward to getting back into it. But I, I'm, but again, it's one of those things. I'm, you know, that it's, you know, it's something that, you know, at least it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm so addicted. You know, people don't realize it. It's not an addictive. As addictive as that, but I will be glad to be able to smoke again someday soon. Um, okay. It has been interesting. It's been an interesting experience because I'm a lifelong, you know, in and out of this uh, life person. So, but so you can get your books. You heard that, uh, Phil. I'm I'm grateful for you to be on the show today, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me and, on. It was fun as always. Oh, good. And then we'll be back on Monday on this show. Well, hopefully Neil will be back in, but later tonight, the illustration begins. Um, if you're listening into this, you know, we're going to try the biggest experiment and creating an online festival you've imagined. I've been, we've all been working really hard on it. All right, blessed be, folks, and thank you, Phil. All right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.